Wonderful. Okay, so over, over these coming months, as we gather like this, I want to unpack, I guess, a little bit about who we are as a church community. You know, we call ourselves Garden City Vineyard, and there's lots of reasons for that. But at the heart of that is this idea that the story of the Bible starts in a garden, doesn't it? It starts in Eden, and it ends in a garden city, a, a renewed earth, um, and, and, and the kingdom of God in all its reality being realised in our midst. And we recognise that as, the lo- as a local church, we get to play our part in seeing that come to reality. That we want to see this city transformed and renewed. And we believe that Jesus' plan A is the local church to see that happen. And so we want to play our part in this city alongside all the other churches that are doing some wonderful things to see God's kingdom come and extended in this place. And so over these coming months, I just want to unpack this idea that we are wanting to learn to be a people who are practicing the way of Jesus. We're practicing the way of Jesus. Uh, we, We want to be disciples. We want to be apprentices of Jesus. And we want to do that together. We want to do that in community. We want to do that um, as brothers and sisters in arms, shoulder to shoulder. And we want to do that for the sake of others, for the renewal of this city. That we would be a church committed to three simple things. Formation, community, and mission. And so I guess spending time thinking about this in the coming months, um, I guess we're trying to set the tone. We're trying to set the tone um, and and try and envisage what it means to orientate ourselves as men and women who are intentional about following Jesus, intentional about forming a community that is really all about him. The late philosopher Dallas Willard, he said this, he said, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who are identified as Christian will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heaven in every corner of human existence. You see, one of the greatest challenges for the church at the dawn of the 21st century is will we truly become disciples of Jesus? Are we ready to be a generation of people who will apprentice ourselves to him? And and will we do that, not simply for our sake, not just so we can feel better, but for the sake of the world? Are we willing to apprentice ourselves in a way? Are we willing to give ourselves in a way to what Jesus is doing for the sake of others. So as we begin to unpack this theme of practicing the way, if you've got a Bible, you might not have thought to bring a Bible to church this morning, but if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, and verse, picking up in verse 24. Just to give you some context, 
Matthew chapter 5 through to 7, um, the Gospel of Matthew, it documents what is often called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he begins to describe what life is like in his kingdom, where he begins to distill the heart attitudes of those called to be his disciples, his apprentices, his students. And so as we pick up in verse 24 of chapter 7, we're we're actually reading Jesus' closing statements to this kind of profound sermon. And, And notably, he doesn't end this sermon with some sort of rally cry. You know, some sort of altar call, or, you know, some pep talk, or some call to action. Instead, he ends this, this, this dialogue with three distinct warnings. And we're going to look at the last warning that he gives today in verse 24. And so it says this, it says, this is Jesus speaking, it says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain come down and the streams rose and the wind blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Sociologists would say we live in an information age. In fact, one study conducted Um, in the 20th century concluded that from the birth of Christ it took 1,500 years for all collective human knowledge to double in capacity. And then from there it took another 250 years for it to double again. So just get this right, that it took 1,500 years for everything that's possible to be known to double in its knowledge, okay? And then every 250 years onwards. And, and, and after that, that doubling happened every 100 years, up until the Second World War. And around the Second World War, that ability for humans to double their knowledge increased every 25 years until we reached the 1990s, where that shifted from 25 years to 12 months. So our ability to consume all that is available to know from the 1990s happened in a 12-month period. Now, 20, 30 years on from the 1990s, that doubling of collective knowledge, the, the human's ability to expand all knowledge actually happens now every 12 hours. Every 12 hours. So think about this. If you were born two millennia ago, it would take 1,500 years for everything to be known to double in its capacity. 
If you were born tomorrow, by the time you went to bed, that knowledge would have doubled again. So my point's this, we live in an information age. We have access to more information than ever before. We also live in a time of accelerated change, mainly due to technology. And again, sociologists would say that that acceleration of technological change far exceeds our human ability to adapt. So the curve of technological change is greater than our human ability to evolve. And that kind of leaves us in this place where we have this underlying sense of anxiety uh, that has become a normal part of our existence, hasn't it? We, we, we kind of feel anxious all the time, where things move so fast for all of us, we're constantly playing catch-up. You know, I couldn't find record on my iPhone because it's updated again. Um, and, and so not only do we have more information than ever before, but we also feel totally overwhelmed by it. And then finally, because of this, our ability to take in information that then results in action is totally out of sync. It's totally out of sync. One author, a guy called Neil Postman, put it this way. He said, the tie between information and action has been severed. Information is now a commodity that can be bought and sold, or used as entertainment, or worn like a garment to enhance one's status. It comes indiscriminately, directed at no one in particular, disconnected from usefulness. We are glutted with information, drowning in information. We have no control over it, and we don't know what to do with it. And, and Postman says that 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 change in information flow happened when they invented something called the telegraph. And suddenly, uh, news from the other side of the world, you could know about it fairly instantaneously. And so we have this experience where we hear something and we're disconnected from it um, because of the place uh, that we inhabit ourselves. Before then, you know, if you lived in a, a town like Bletchley or Wolverton or Newport Pagnell, news would have been local, wouldn't it? Among a sm much smaller population. And your ability to respond to that was much, much greater. You know, so someone says, oh, guess what? Joe's house is on fire. Oh, what can we do about it? Well, let's get some water. Yeah. You're able, to, you're able to respond. But what that means is that we are now used to hearing lots of information, and we may even be moved by that information. Think, you know, a famine breaking out in an African country, or a disaster happening somewhere, or an earthquake, or a wildfire, whatever it might be, we can be moved by what's happening. But then, um, we live with this reality that we're getting all this information, but most of us have no ability to do anything with it. No, most of us can't make a real difference with the information we're receiving. And so we live in this age where we're used to hearing information, but not doing anything with it. 
Yet as men and women learning to practice the way of Jesus, this reality that we live in will not help us to become the kind of resilient disciples, apprentices of Jesus that we're called to be. Let's go back to Jesus' words, verse 24. Therefore, uh, everyone who hears these words of mine, meaning everything I've just said in the Sermon on the Mount for the last three chapters of Matthew, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Now, the Greek, Greek word for practice is, is found throughout this whole section of Jesus' teaching, and it can mean a number of things. It can mean practice, obviously. It can mean to act. Um, it can mean uh, to follow, or it can also mean to obey. Everything Jesus is saying, particularly in this closing section of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, is that it's, it's not enough to simply hear what's being said. It's not enough to just take notes and work out a few Greek words. It's, it's not enough just to take in yet more information. At the end of everything, Jesus says the invitation is to do something, to act, to follow, to obey, to put into practice. We're to do something with what Jesus is saying. And to drive this point home, Jesus tells this story. He says, those who put my teaching into practice are like a wise man who built a house on rock. And so when the rain comes, and when the floods rise, uh, and when the wind beats against the house, it does not fall. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain comes down, the streams rise, the wind blows against it, and the house falls with a great crash. Now, if you've been around church for some time, this story is often reduced, isn't it, to a Sunday school story. How many of you have been around church long enough to know what flannel graph is? Um, um, but when I think about this story, I think about flannel graph, which is like this material board with lots of material shaped people that you stick to it. Um, that was my, my church upbringing. And, and often we hear a story like this that's really familiar and we completely miss what Jesus is actually saying. But this story is about two people building a home, one called Wise, and, and the Greek here could be translated as smart, intelligent, enlightened, and the other called foolish, which actually, the Greek word is moros, where we get the word moron from. Um, and, and so it could be translated stupid, or lacking in intelligence. And so there's this picture of two people building a home. Now, in Jesus' day, a home or a house was a metaphor for your life. Uh, the home, in the context which Jesus is speaking, was something, something different to what we understand. First, your home was multi-generational. And so it was grandparents, parents, children, two, three generations living together. And second, your home was your workplace. For some of us, 
that's the, that's a reality now, I know. But your home is your workplace. It's where your livelihood happens. And all that's to say is that a house was a picture of your life as a home. And Jesus said, a wise person builds his house. A wise person builds his or her life on the foundation of putting into practice everything he has been teaching. Whereas a foolish person, though they may like what Jesus has to say, the foolish person doesn't do anything with what Jesus is saying. Now, Jesus doesn't say why the foolish person does that. Maybe they were too busy. Maybe it's the wrong season of life. Maybe they're re-evaluating things. Maybe they're tired, worn out, dealing with difficult circumstances. And I think not knowing is intentional because we can all put ourselves in the story, can't we? We can all place ourselves there. Am I wise or am I foolish? Am I wise when it comes to practicing what Jesus has to say or am I foolish? Now here's the thing, from a distance, those who build their house on a rock, on Jesus' teaching, and those that build their house on the sand, those that never put into practice what Jesus has to say, don't look that different from each other from a distance. I mean, both houses are standing, aren't they? Both are doing their job. The only time you notice a difference is when the storm comes. Now, the image of a flood in scriptures can sometimes be God's judgment, but it can also uh, represent the trials, the storms of life. Be it a tragedy, be it a diagnosis, a death, a financial burden, a loss of a job, or even something like a global pandemic. You remember that? Um, a global pandemic or a cost of living crisis. And Jesus doesn't say if. He says when. So when the flood comes, when the difficulty comes, when that diagnosis comes, when that crisis comes. And, and the truth is, in all our lives, those kinds of moments are going to come. Jesus isn't some kind of self-help guru who gives us ten helpful steps to the good life. He's brutally honest. There are moments in our life when life is going to be hard, when life is a challenge. And if we follow him or we don't follow him, the wise man and the foolish man both experience the storm. They both experience the storm. And, and, and you see, when the storm comes, when the flood hits the home of our life, it reveals what's at our core, what our lives are actually built upon. And you know, for many of us, the past few years have kind of been the stress test for our discipleship, haven't they? You know, what we've experienced, things that we never thought we'd ever experience, ever, have, have revealed where the foundations of our life really is. And so when the storm hits, when the crisis comes, for some, the truth is that's a moment when things fall down with a big crash. I'm sure we've all witnessed someone whose life has imploded. And, um, you know, maybe you've experienced it yourself. 
If not, we've all known someone maybe in the public realm, a celebrity. And we've all seen people go from the top to the bottom and fall hard. But the truth is, it's not always the mega scandal, is it? It's not always that major calamity that brings someone down. But actually, sometimes it can be a simple result of living life over the long haul, not building our lives on the right foundation. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them, but the sins of others trail behind them. With some people it's obvious, and, and the destruction of their lives is plain to see, but with, with other people, we don't always see it coming. And whilst the sun's out, and the sky's blue, their house looks great. But the foundations are not in place. And it can immediately and, and it can it can be seen for what it really is. Over time, things start to erode, start to fall apart. And you know, all of us need to embrace the soberness of that. None of us are immune, are we? What I've realized is greater men and women than me have ended up building their house on sand. Lives that are built on things other than what Jesus has for them. And you know what we should do with a story like this? It shouldn't just remind us of Sunday school and songs about, you know, the rains come down and the floods went, you know. Um, it, it shouldn't just remind us of that. What it should do is actually put a little bit of fear in us. Not fear in the kind of anxiety, worry sense, but a healthy fear. You know where the Bible says, you know, fear God. Um, and, and there is a time and place where fear is a healthy emotion. This is a warning from Jesus at the end of this amazing sermon. And I'd encourage you to read it this week. It's time to let your apathy shift. For light to shine on what you're truly building your life on. And we all need that light shining sometimes, don't we? Knowing full well that what I've said at the start, we are all used to receiving information and doing nothing with it. We're all used to consuming something and not actually actually responding, taking action, because we're totally overwhelmed by information, because we're used to hearing stuff, being moved, but doing very little in the process. And you see, when, when we live in a world that operates like that, this is a moment for you and I, as people trying to follow Jesus, to wake up, to wake up. You know, if the goal of teaching the scriptures if the goal of me standing up on a Sunday and saying, this is what the, I think the Bible has to say, if it's simply to gain more information, we've missed it. We've missed it. We're, we're, we're living in a house still with boxes that need unpacking and my office needs unpacking and I've got, you know, hundreds of books 
And I look at these boxes of books and I think, why have I got hundreds of books? Why do I need all this information? And we can, we can be like that, can't we? We can just collect lots of Christian information. And we can buy books and never read them because it looked good to buy that book. And then it was the right thing to do because someone suggested I should read that book. It will transform my life. But I just never got round to doing it. You see, Jesus' vision for humanity isn't a nice set of ideas or some helpful thoughts to get you through the day. Following him involves our whole self, mind, body, spirit. Following Jesus is a lifestyle. It's not an add-on. It's not just something we do like going to the gym or you know, going to the pub or going to church. Jesus is a teacher, but his goal in teaching us isn't to inform us. His goal is to transform us. And the, and, the, and the goal is for us to live transformed lives, for us to become like him. Dallas Willard says we're, we're to live our lives like Jesus, as if he was us. He was living our life. And so how do we do that? How do we put into practice the, the, the way of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus? Well, it's through this thing that we call formation, intentional formation. And just, just to finish up, I think we've got a little diagram. I like diagrams. To help us understand what formation looks like. You see, formation does involve teaching. It involves some level of transference of information. But as I said, information on its own just isn't enough. The invitation of Jesus is to put into practice what he's teaching. And we, we don't simply engage in practices by simply willpower alone. You know, you can't leave here today and think, I'm just going to try harder. I'm just going to try a little bit harder. The reality is we don't practice Jesus' teachings by trying. We do it by training. Training over the long haul. As some of you will know, today is the London Marathon. About 50,000 crazy people are running 26.2 miles around our capital. But just imagine if I woke up this morning and decided I'm going to run a marathon. What would happen? Being the, the height of fitness that I am, what would happen? I would die. I would die. But what would happen if I just tried hard? I would still die. I would still die. And so the question is, how might I become the kind of person who could run a marathon? Well, it's through slow, consistent training over the long haul. So if you want to become the kind of person who could run a marathon, where do I start? Well, tomorrow, perhaps I'll run, no, I won't. <laughs> tomorrow, perhaps I'll run a mile, okay? And then maybe increase it to two, three. And, and actually, over a slow period of time, as fitness increase, my ability to run further 
becomes a reality until it is well within my ability as a person. It's never going to happen, by the way. Well within my ability as a person to run 26.2 miles, to run a marathon. Um, me and my daughter had this agreement that maybe in seven years' time we would do it. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, the problem is, that's not how most of us approach putting Jesus' teaching into practice. We see the end goal, and we think we just need to try harder to get there without the practice. See, practicing the way of Jesus is one day at a time over the long haul. Over the long haul, through the hard knocks of life, through the ups and downs of life. And you know, how many of us know we all have gaps, don't we? We all live with gaps in our life. We all have gaps between who we are and who Jesus is. Between the life we have and the life we want. Between how things are working now and the person God has called us and created us to be. You see, the goal of formation is to close that gap. To close the gap between who we are and who Jesus is. One day at a time through the process of practice. Learning to practice. What Eugene Peterson says is a long obedience in the same direction. And the truth is, we can't do it alone. We need people with us. We practice the way of Jesus together in the context of community. You know, in the scriptures there are two words, two Greek words for the word you. There's one that means you, the individual, but there's also a you that means plural, it means us, it means us together. And what we don't catch in this passage is that Jesus is using that you when he's talking, he's talking about people together over and over again, meaning we put Jesus' teaching into practice together in community, brothers and sisters in arms, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. That's why it's important to have a community, to be networked with other people and belonging to one another. You know, to use that marathon analogy, to have running mates. I think I would be in the support car. But to have running mates, people we can do this with. And finally, you know, if we're intentional about putting Jesus' teaching into practice, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. You see, the Spirit of God is at the centre of our transformation. And although we need to put effort in, we need to train, um, and we need to change, change things and do things, it's not possible without the work of the Spirit in our lives. You see, we need the Spirit's empowering presence as we journey towards transformation. And so the role of the Holy Spirit is to do a deep work in our lives. Allowing the Spirit of God to lead us um, forward and onwards. And so when things come up in our lives, we don't run away, we don't hide, we don't go back to those other ways of self-medicating some of our pain. But we go to the Spirit of God and we say, Spirit of God, transform me from the inside out. 
Come and form me and shape me into the person you want me to be. Make me more like Jesus. When Jesus finished what he was saying, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. They said he taught with one who had authority, as one with, who had authority. See, Jesus was a teacher like no other. He didn't build upon what anyone else had to say. And in fact, the Sermon on the Mount explicitly reveals who Jesus really was. And the truth is, as we journey towards a life of formation and transformation, we have to acknowledge Jesus' authority in our life. We have to submit our lives to his authority, to his lordship. You know that that there's no such thing as no lord. You know, Jesus can't be lord, and we say no. And so as I come into land right now, as we think about how we might respond this morning, maybe the place where we start is to recognise his authority in our lives again. That Jesus has authority. And that we invite him to come by his spirit and transform us into the people he's made us to be. Not for our sake, but for the sake of the city. That that he wants to do a work in us and a, a work of transformation in us so that he can do a work through us in seeing this city transformed. That's why we want to be a church that is intentional from the start, that we want to practice the way of Jesus. We want to do everything we can to become the kind of resilient disciples that Jesus needs in this day and time. We want to give him the authority.